Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Daniel chapter 9. Uh, now, now, Daniel chapter 9, I already mentioned, th- there's a prayer in here. And we're going to look at the prayer this morning. The, the, the prayer is a rich prayer. It, it, it's up there with things like the Lord's Prayer and with Nehemiah's Prayer. There, there's all these like amazing prayers in the Bible. This is one of the longest ones in the Bible. It's not the longest, but it's up there. Um, one scholar, uh, well, so the prayer goes from like verse 1 to the end of verse 19. Um, in the chapter that we're looking at, then in verse 20 and going to the end of 27, there's this decree of 70 weeks. And the both of them tie together, but um, only four verses right at the end there contain a power-packed punch of prophecy about the future for God's people. Um, so we're going to look at the first 19 verses together this morning um, because I want to focus in on prayer for a moment because so much of what Daniel does is tied with who he knows he is. Daniel is an exile. He, he's a foreigner in a, or he's a, an Israelite in a foreign country. He's a person who, along with the rest of Israel and Judah, for the most part, are exiled. They're taken out of the land that God gave them. And they're taken out because God kept his covenant. Because God said, look, Israel, if you're faithful to me, you'll remain in the land and you'll have blessings of the land. But if you're not faithful to me, you're going to be sent into exile. They never cease, though, to be his people. They never cease to be his people. Their identity doesn't change, although their location does because of their sin. And Daniel, in chapter 9, is going to have this incredible prayer, recognizing who God is, what God has done, and in going to God and saying, God, in your forgiveness and your compassion, restore us to your land for your name's sake. That's the prayer in a nutshell. So we're going to divide this into two parts, and we're going to read and then study and then read and then study. So would you look at this with me, please? Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 is where we're at. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was ruler over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. All right. Daniel sets the the time for us here. I've told you before, Daniel Daniel is not in chronological order for the most part. Daniel chapter 9 actually comes before Daniel chapter 6. If you remember, in Daniel chapter 6, we studied the um, Daniel, and he goes into the lion's den, you have all that. That actually comes after what's happened here. And we find out in Daniel 6 that what sends him there, or what they use in order to send him there, is that they can't find anything wrong with him, except that he is religiously devoted to his God. Not just in a, he does the forms and he does his time, check mark, done. But he actually believes and engages with the God whom he worships and he serves. That's the character of Daniel. And it's in this first year. Now, when it says the first year of Darius, you have to say, well, what came before this? When Darius comes on the scene, basically what happens is he comes in, the Median army, that doesn't mean average, that means the army that belongs to the Mede empire, Median, um, they come in and they take out the other rulers, Babylon. So, So Daniel, here's the timeline of Daniel's life. Daniel is in Jerusalem. All right? In about 605 BCE, he's carted off in what is one of the first of three exiles of the people to Babylon. In Babylon, he learns what does it mean to honor God in a pagan world. And he lives most of his life from about 15 years when he leaves Jerusalem. How many of you are 15 years old or somewhere close to it? All right, we've got a couple 15-year-olds. So imagine you're taken away to a foreign land. Everywhere you know, everyone you know is different. You're moved over here. You're planted in a different place. And, and your job then is to do what God tells you in a foreign land. Daniel lives most of his life 
going against the system of the people in the land. They're not going against the system, but, but seeking to honor God while seeking to do his job in a way that honors God and serves people like Nebuchadnezzar. So 605, he's 15. You come through his life. He's, he's in exile, about 15. And then you go, and he's probably in his 80s right now. He's coming to the end of his life, and he's lived under one kingdom this entire time, the kingdom of Babylon. We've talked about Babylon uh, a bit, so we won't go into that. But this is about 539, 538 BC. Daniel is around 81 years old, and there's this huge political transition that has taken place. If a new party in politics comes in and takes over the other party, there's all this disheveledness and all this kind of sliding back and forth. And you're trying to figure out which way's up and which way's down. How is this one going to rule as opposed to this one? Imagine that on steroids because you have an army that comes in and absolutely conquers Babylon. They come in. And with this, there's this political transition. There's this military transition. And Daniel's going, all right, Lord, what are you doing? And notice where, um, where Daniel goes. You know, Daniel's in exile. But, but when he's in this first year of the reign of King Darius, verse 2 says, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. Right? So in the middle of this transition, what's he doing? He's studying the text. He's going to the scroll it wasn't a bound copy or anything like this. It was a scroll or a scroll like this that was sent by a guy by the name of Jeremiah, who was a prophet in Jerusalem a little bit before Daniel's time. Da- Jeremiah hears the word of the Lord, writes it down, sends it to the exiles who are in Babylon. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this is the scroll that, that Daniel is reading. He's recognizing that while God gives him visions and dreams at times, and while God reveals himself to him, God also reveals himself in Holy Scripture through people like Jeremiah, through prophets whose word is true because it comes from God. Daniel's studying the book of Jeremiah, the, the scroll of Jeremiah, and he's looking at two different passages uh, in in. Um, in particular. The first one is Jeremiah 25, where Jeremiah actually prophesies Babylon's ruin before it happens. He, he tells about how Babylon is going to fall. But not only that, and we're going to look at this one today, he, he goes to Jeremiah 29, verse 10 and following. Now, Jeremiah is sent to the people under Nebuchadnezzar's, or Jeremiah sent to the people under Nebuchadnezzar's reign in Babylon, this scroll. And in Jeremiah 29, it says... Before it comes to, chapter, to verse 10, it says, here's how God wants you to live in this foreign land. He says, I want you to build and to live, right? So people displaced from where they came from. Jeremiah says, people of God, you're going to be there for a while. I want you to build and live. I want you to establish families. I want you to seek the welfare of your city. He says, I don't want you to listen to deceiving prophets. I don't want you to go down wrong paths. I want you to stay close to the word of the Lord, even when you're not where God said you'd be in the beginning. You're there because God is judging you for this. But even while you're there, he says, stay close to the Lord. And we come to this amazing verse that many of us might even have on a scroll or on a, uh, on a thing in our office or in our house. I have a, a, a sign with this in my office. We come to this verse that says, sorry, I'm just getting going here. David, would you go to the next slide for me, please? Next one. Thank you. It says this in verse 10 of Jeremiah 29. So he said, build and plant Seek the welfare of the city, establish yourselves, be the people of God in a foreign land. He says this, for this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. So he's talking about a future restoration after a 70 year time in Babylon. He says this, you might know this verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Sorry, I know it in a different translation. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. How many of you have ever seen that verse before? All right. It comes in the context of a people being sent out of the land because they were disobedient to God. And God is coming to them and he's saying, don't worry. I know exactly what your plans are going to be. 
You don't know all of them fully, but I do. And they're plans, not for, um, it's plans for your welfare, not for your destruction. It's plans to give you a future and a hope. And Jeremiah is around 81 years old going, God, when are we going to come back into the land? God, you decreed 70 years. God, when's it going to take place? And he says through the prophet Jeremiah, years before, there's going to be something that I will do. You will have hope he says this, you will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I love that verse because it reminds me that when we seek God, he's right there. Like you and I can, can call out to God today and know that God will be right there. That he will hear your cry. That he will hear your prayer. And he will take it into his life. And he desires the best for you. And the best for you always comes through what he wants to do in your life. It says, I will be found by you. This is the, Lord de- the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. You, declaration. I will restore you to the place I deported you from. So the story, God sends Israel out of the land. Part of his covenant keeping promise. You can look in Deuteronomy for that, for example. But he says, don't worry, I won't leave you there. I will bring you back. You can bank on it because I have plans for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you hope in a future. This is a familiar passage for, for many of us for, gra- for graduations and major life transitions. Yet for Daniel, it meant so much more. As God gave these words to Jeremiah the prophet, he gave them so that they would have focus for how they were to live as an exile in a foreign land. They were to live, even though they weren't in the land of Israel, they were to live Godward. They were to live with a heart set upon the Lord. They were to live with great dependence. And there's some principles we can take from this passage. The first one is this, God will confirm and keep his promises. When he promises to the Jewish people, I will bring you back. Guess what? He actually does bring them back. He does. He's a covenant-keeping God. And Daniel trusted this, which is why he goes studying this, and which is why he brings this to God. Number two principle is that God cares about the welfare of his people. He doesn't want them just to go through their days and just take whatever comes. He wants them to live in constant dependence of him. He wants them to know what it means that God loves them, that God has plans and purposes, and even though you're not where you think you should be, rest. Find peace in knowing that where you think you should be may not be where you are, but don't worry, God has you right where you are today. Principle number three is God can be found. When we seek him, he can be found. It reminds me that a relationship with God requires intentionality. An active relationship with God requires intentionality. Israel never ceases to be God's covenant people, but for them to seek him and find him, God says, when you search for me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Daniel is intentional about his focus in seeking after God. Notice a little bit more of this in verse 3. In verse 3, it says, so I turned my attention. You know, I focused myself. I turned my face to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. What Daniel models for us in his life and in his prayer life is not a casual pursuit. It's focused. It's intentional. Prayer is a communication with God. It's a way to seek him and to seek his will and desire for our life. Not because we want to cajole or twist God's arm into what we want, because, but because God wants us to have a heart that's better aligned with him. When we come to God with prayer, when we come with intention, and we come with focus, oftentimes we're ready to hear what God wants to reveal to us. Prayer is a communication with God to seek him. It's not just answers. Daniel demonstrates that, that prayer for him is not something that's just rote or mechanical. Now, he does have certain times of day he goes to pray. He's very... Um, patterned in his life but it's not out of rote it's not out of mechanics it's not out of check the box it's out of he knows that that constant lifeline to the lord requires intentionality and so he places things in his day to to help establish and maintain that intentionality so that his heart doesn't go astray 
Prayer is the belief that God wants to hear us and be in relationship with us. Prayer is the belief that God wants to hear us and be in relationship with us. And Daniel takes a very difficult societal political situation and he does this. He takes difficult situation, he adds the word of God to it, and he seeks God with focus and intention. And mind you, that, that's, a great, um, that's a great recipe for moving closer to the heart of God. Take whatever situation you have before you, open the word of God and its truth, rightly understand it, and go to God in prayer and say, Father, would you reveal this, the, the truth of this, the application of this to me by your spirit? When we see Daniel's prayer life in chapter 6, the whole lines in chapter, it's something that is absolutely core to who he is before God. It's absolutely core to who he is. It sets aside time to speak and to intentionally hear from God. How do you approach prayer in your life? I think for many of us, we'd probably say, man, my prayer life isn't where I'd want it to be. I know for me, I would say that. It's not where I want it to be. There's so much more I want to understand about the heart of God and God's wills and God's purposes and God's plans. There's so much more. I long to not just know about God, but actually to know and to walk more closely with God so that when his spirit leads me, I go, yep, we're there. I was writing something this week in, in something I was doing for school. And um, I was reminded of a time years ago where I was driving down 96th Street. I was driving north and it was raining cats and dogs outside. And there was a person on the side of the road. And I just had the sense to stop and to ask if there's anything I could do for them. Now, um, in this moment, I did not stop. You know, the justifier came into my head, right? The, the justifier came in and said, it's raining. Why would you want to stop? You're going to scare that poor person half to death. They're waiting for a bus. The bus will come any minute. And so I rationalized what I sensed God's spirit telling me. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll go up here, God, and I'll do what I need to do up here. And then I'll turn around. And if they're still there when I come back, I'll be obedient. A lot of us, we engage in, in that walk with God where we second-guess the movement and the leading of his spirit in our lives. I think for Daniel, one of the things that he sensed is that his walk with God was so close and so dear that when God revealed something to him, even if he didn't fully understand it, it was like, okay, I don't know what to do with that, but I'm going to trust your word, God. Sure, Daniel was probably not perfect, but Daniel demonstrated something that for us, that's important to prayer. Prayers can come in many forms. They can be long. They can be short. Um, they can happen in public places. They can happen in quiet places. But, but really how we pray in our personal lives and how we relate to God in, in our seeking to follow the leading of his spirit and follow the leading of his word um, reveals a lot about how we view God. We're going to look at the prayer in just a moment, but I love what this writer said. Sinclair Ferguson said this about Daniel's prayer. It says, Daniel's prayer is the anatomy of a heart conscious of the glory of God and wholly devoted to him. Let me read that again. Daniel's prayer is the anatomy of a heart conscious of the glory of God and wholly devoted to him. When I look at Daniel's prayer, what, what fascinates me is that Daniel is more concerned about God's name and God's reputation, what God wants to do, than he is about Daniel. Not that God doesn't care about Daniel, because he does. Um, a couple of times later in the chapter, he's going to tell Daniel, we won't look at this in this hour, but a couple of times he'll say, Daniel, you're, you're beloved. I'm looking for it. Um, but, but he says, Daniel, you're, you're beloved. I, I, I care for you. I'll find it later. I can't find it right now. It's in chapter 9, in the latter part. But when Daniel comes before God... He's consumed with the glory of God. He's consumed with God's name and God's desires and God's fame in his life and in the nation of Israel. So let's look briefly at this prayer. Um, it says in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, we've done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances 
We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, fathers, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us. The men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far, in all the countries where you have dispersed them because of the disloyalty they have shown toward you, Lord, Public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He has carried out the words that he spoke against us and not and against our rulers by bringing on us so great a disaster that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not appeased the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all that he has done, but we've not obeyed him. Now, Lord, our God, now, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made your name renowned as it is to this day, we have sinned. We have acted wickedly, Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts. May your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become an object of ridicule to those around. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Show your favor to your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city called by your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. This is the prayer that he's engaged in when then the angel Gabriel comes to him and the angel Gabriel says, God's heard your prayer. And by the way, God wants to give you a little bit more of a vision for not just what's going to happen to your people, but what's going to happen in the future. But let's look at the prayer just briefly. Daniel, in these, in these words, shows us that his prayer is personal and it focuses on God's character while having a right view of himself. Notice what it says in verse 4. It says, Lord my God. I prayed to the Lord my God. Now, whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the covenantal name of God. yod heh vav -Heh in Hebrew. Yahweh is most of the time that it's pronounced. It's this covenantal name of God. And that means it's a name that, that signifies relationship. It, it's interesting because in all of Daniel, um, th this is a common like central name for the Lord. Um, in Daniel, it's not used until chapter 7. And it's used, or sorry, chapter 9. And it's used seven times in Daniel chapter 9. When, God, when Daniel comes before God, he says, Yahweh. And he's going back to who God is in his very character. One of my friends, he's a pastor in the area uh, who led our trip to Israel many years ago. He likes to say it this way. I'll personalize it for myself. The name here, Lord, capital O, capital R, capital, capital I can't spell, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's kind of like what I, what I, it's kind of like a relationship that I have with three people in this world. It's a very special name. Um, there's a lot of names that I am called, all right? There, there's names like Pastor Jeremy, there's Jeremy, there's um, Pastor Cobb, there's Reverend Cobb, there's Mr. Cobb. I don't answer those usually. That's my dad. Um, the, sometimes my, my sister used to call me Jer Bear. Don't even think about it. <laughs> Can't believe I admitted that. Oh, my word. Oh, my sister, I love her. She's great. Um, there's all these names that I can be called, but there's only three people in this world who can call me one of the best names in all the world. Dad. When God gives this name to his people, Israel, it's, say, it's signifying, Israel, I'm the God who's going to be there for you. 
I'm the God who's going to be in relationship with you. I am going to be like a father to you. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, elsewhere in the book of, I think it's Deuteronomy in the Torah, um, Israel calls God their father. There's this understanding that God is their father, although they're not always children who walk after his ways. But there's this relationship there that comes through this covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and it represents the God who is there. Right? That's the other way you could kind of understand the, the, the name Lord here with all caps. It's the God who is there. God's name is tied to his character. When Daniel prays this, he's going back to, God, this is who you have been. God, this is who you said you were. God, I'm coming to you because I am a part of a people who are called by your name. We are marked by your name. And much like Moses says towards the end of his life, God, if we go into the land and you are not with us, what does it matter one bit? Daniel makes a similar appeal. God, it's for your glory. It's for your renown. It's for your fame among the nations. God, do this work in us. Verse, um, so, so God's name is tied to his character, that he is a God who keeps gracious covenant to those who love him. But notice what happens in verses five and six. Daniel recognizes that we have sinned, right? He's, he's talking not just about himself. He's talking about the people and he's talking about the generations that have come before him because he recognizes that they as a nation have sinned before God. He includes himself in this prayer to God. He says, God, we have sinned. And, and he doesn't um, try to make their condition any better. Right? He doesn't say, God, we, we've been pretty good. He says, God, we, we've sinned. We've not listened. He's being honest with God. Did you know that in your prayers, you can be absolutely brutally honest with God? He cares. Besides, he knows anyway. So you might as well be honest with God. You might as well wrestle with God. Go back to his word and say, God, I don't understand this. God, I don't understand this. But when you do that, always put your... And always hang your coat or hang your hat back on, but God, this is who you are. And God, this is what you've said you would do. He comes to God saying, we're not perfect. In fact, we're really not perfect. But he implores God's mercy and his righteousness. Verses seven and eight, he says, Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us. The, the idea of righteousness in the text here has the idea of integrity. It, it means that God has been someone who has kept his word all along. Even when Israel has been faithless, God has been faithful. He's been righteous. In fact, they're in exile because God has been righteous to keep his promises. Yet, his people, Israel, Daniel prays, public shame belongs to us. One of the ways that public shame belongs to them is that it, God's people engaged in a whole host of idolatrous things. Like, instead of worshiping the God who rescued them from the hand of Pharaoh and rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, eventually what they did is they built places like this. This is a, a high place that was built by the King Jeroboam. On this place uh, was constructed a calf to worship. If you're reading through the Bible with us this year, you'll know that calf to worship is not a good thing. After Moses comes down uh, from Mount Sinai, he comes down and he hears this, this noise and this clamor. And what had happened is Aaron, and his brother, had been down there. And the, the community said, build us a God that we can see. So Aaron fashioned, out of all these precious metals, a God that they could see, a calf. And this idolatry continued into the latter parts of the life of both Israel and Judah. And they built a place like that. You can see how big that is. You see that guy down there? Like that's twice as tall as he is. And then there was a calf that would, that would stand on top of this. This was a place where people would come and they would offer themselves in worship to a God that they can see, but a God that can't do anything for them. Now, before we're too hard on them, I imagine most of us could think of various idols that we've built in our life that we give our time and we give our heart and we give our attention to, but they can't do anything for us. They, they don't care about who we are. They just want more. The God who is there, the God, Yahweh, who is a covenant-keeping God, is not just about doing stuff for his people. He's about giving them life. And life comes in relationship with him. That's where the fullness of life is lived. 
Daniel says here that public shame belongs to us. You know, before there was sin in the world, there was no shame. In fact, Genesis says that the man and the woman walked around in the garden and they were naked and there was no shame. It's not until they said, wait, we want to go our own way. God, we want to replace you. We want to make something else God in our lives. And we all make something else God in our lives at some point. It's at that point, shame comes into the story. And then we, for the rest of, up until now, we're born into a world where shame is a reality for our world because all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. But the amazing truth is this, is that in Jesus, we don't have to live in shame. I love the phrase that we sang earlier. It hit me anew when we were singing it. Released from my shame, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt. He called me his friend. That's when death was arrested and my life began. If you're a follower of Jesus, the moment you came into relationship with God through faith and trusting in Jesus' death and his resurrection, shame was no longer a part of your life. Now, you can still do things that you feel shame for, but who you are as a person, when God looks at you, he does not look at you as someone who has shamed him. He looks at you as his child. That's your position. That's our position as God's people. But there's a whole bunch of people who experience shame today because they either don't have a relationship with Jesus and they do have shame because of that, because they sin and they walk away from God. They walk in rebellion to God. Or because we believe the lies, we believe the lies in our life that say things about who we are that aren't consistent with what God has said. Shame is not something for the believer today because of Jesus. Notice, though, he says public shame belongs to us, the men of Judah. And he keeps talking. He talks more about public shame belongs to us and to our kings. But look at verse 9. He says, compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him. Compassion and forgiveness. The only hope of shame removal is God's compassion and forgiveness. It's God's compassion and forgiveness that caused him to send his son, his one and only son, the one he loved, to become a sin-atoning sacrifice for you and for me, to remove our guilt and our shame. Compassion is a word here that's rarely used of humanity, but it's commonly used of God. Uh, There's a a ton of passages in the New Testament, too, that talk about how Jesus had compassion. Compassion is this. It refers to the deep, tender love and pity that a parent feels for his child. You get why Daniel's praying Yahweh. He's going to someone who he knows is compassionate and gracious, who is slow to anger and abounding in grace. Forgiveness here is a word that's never used of human forgiveness. Human forgiveness always is modeled after God's forgiveness. It's not, it's not the same thing. But this word here is never used of human forgiveness. It's only used with God's. And it describes the pardon that God alone can provide to those who rebel against him. It describes the pardon that God alone can provide to those who rebel against him. Notice how um, this idea of compassion is used in the scripture. Uh, Psalm 103, it's a psalm of forgiveness. And in verse 11, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, Yahweh, slow to anger, abounding in love. So the Lord, same word, same name for God, has compassion on those who fear him. The idea of fear here, by the way, is not an idea of being afraid. It's about being in awe of who God is and what God has done. It's properly placing God as the king in your life. It's not being, I'm afraid of you, although God is holy and righteous and just. And so there's a measure of that that's, that's fear. Like when Moses experiences the, um, the burning bush that doesn't burn up, he falls on his knees because he's standing in holy ground. He's knowing before whom he stands. But this idea of fear is this idea of reverence, this idea of awe, knowing who God is. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Daniel is going to the very core of who God is in his prayer. Israel, verse 10 here, Israel, he says, we've not obeyed the voice of our Lord, or voice of the Lord our God, by following his instructions that he sent through the prophets. As a result of this, there's an exile. 
But their disobedience doesn't change God's unconditional promises or their place as a nation. But here's what it did do. It affected their relationship. You get the difference? It's kind of like in a marriage. Like I, I often have the ability and, and joy of officiating marriages. And I stand before the couple and I say, do you, do you, do you, do you, by the power invested in me, blah, blah, blah. I now pronounce you man and wife. That's a marriage covenant that they enter into willingly. That's a covenant. Like they sign their name, depending on what county we're in, they have other people sign their name. It's something that goes beyond just a word. It's actually like a covenant before God. It's a covenant before the state. And they say, we have a legally bounded marriage here. But as any married people know, you can be married and not be in a great relationship with each other. You can have bumps along the road where you have a misunderstanding and relationally you're just not on the same page. What's in view here is not their identity as God's people, just like a marriage covenant is not in view when a couple walks through a difficult time. What's in view here is the closeness of their relationship because God cares about both. It's not just about having the ring. It's about walking hand in hand with the one you love. That's what God wants with his people. Daniel recognizes this. And and he continues to say, you know, all Israel has broken your law. We've turned away, refusing to obey you. And he talks about how, God, you've promised this. God, you've kept your word. He continues to acknowledge that God is right and just in all that he has done. In fact, Israel is in exile because God kept the covenant that they made together. They made it together. Verses 15 and 16 tell us that Daniel is consumed and concerned with God's namesake. He says, Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made your name renowned as it is to this day, we've sinned, we've, wa- we've acted rebelliously. Lord, in keeping with your righteous ass, acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule. He cares about his city. He cares about his people. What drives his prayers that he longs for the people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem to be restored, to bring glory to the Lord. So when all the nations look at it, they go, there's a nation whose God is Yahweh. There is the glory of God walking and living through a people. Verses 17 and 19 kind of sum up. You've got a big therefore in the, in the first part of that sentence in verse 17. Therefore, God, he says, hear our prayer and the petitions of our servants. Show your favor to your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen, my God, here, open your eyes, see the desolations. And I love this. He says, for we are not presenting our petitions before you based upon our righteous acts, but based upon your abundant compassion. When Daniel comes and and seeks God, he doesn't say, God, look at what I've done. Don't I deserve? Don't I earn? He says, God, based upon your compassion, would you hear my prayer? Based upon who you are and your name's sake, for your sake, because of your city, for the people called by your glory, God, respond. He's a person who demonstrated that God was sufficient for him. Whatever God's response would be, as he's trying to figure out, God, what do you mean 70 years? Whatever God's response would be, Daniel cares about God's glory. Daniel cares about who God is and his relationship with the living God. What a prayer. What a prayer. As we kind of bring this a little bit more to to our lives, um, I want to invite you to pray. I want to invite you to pray. And I'm going to give you just a couple of things to to maybe help you in your prayer life. And so if you have pen, paper, pencil, paper, whatever, feel free to write this down. Um, There's a, um, let me ask you this. How would you describe your prayers? (laughs) How would you describe your prayers? Again, long, short, doesn't matter. It's how do you come to God? Come to God expectantly. Do you come to God based upon who he is and what he wants to do in your life? Do you come to God trusting that he has your best in mind? Because he does. Scripture tells us in the New Testament, it says to pray always. (laughs) Every life, every part of our life is supposed to be something having to do with prayer. And that doesn't mean that we stop when we bow our heads in every prayer. In fact, if you're driving a car, you should not stop and bow and pray your heads. You should keep driving and keep your hand on the wheel and say, Lord Jesus, take the wheel. 
Sorry. Uh, there's a prayer that goes back, I don't know how long, and it's an Acts prayer. Some of you probably know this, A-C-T-S. It's a great form. It's a great model for how to pray. The Acts prayer begins with this, adoration. You know, Daniel started in, in the first part here. He says, ah, oh Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant. He's going back to who God is. He's adoring who God is. Adoration is an incredible way to begin your prayer. Remember and acknowledge who God is. And if you want a passage of scripture to pray along that way, Psalm 103, verses 1 through 14 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless your holy name. The psalmist rightly places in this psalm of forgiveness, he rightly places God, this is who you are. You heal our sicknesses, you care for our diseases, you redeem my life from a pit. Psalm 34 would be another great one. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my earthly fears. Those who look to him are radiant. God, thank you for being radiant. God, you are majestic. You are holy. You are righteous. Let your prayers begin and have as a component, God, this is who you are. You can even begin as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Father, the word there is, is the word Abba. It's a word that means, uh, it has the idea of respect, but intimacy. It's like that idea of God being called by the covenantal name Yahweh. Intimacy and respect. You can come to God and you can recognize who he is. In fact, it's good for you to do that because in the midst of a chaos kind of world, it's good to remember that God is on the throne. Amen? Adoration. C. Confession. Another great thing, confession. You notice Daniel did a lot of confession. He, he had a lot to confess on behalf of himself and his people. What confession does is it recognizes how we have walked away from God. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, like if we're, if we're followers of Jesus and we sin, that doesn't mean our relationship with God is severed, all right? That, that relationship by faith is once, once you come into faith, that's for all time. Your eternity is secure in Christ. But when we come to confess, it's kind of like what, um, it's kind of like what the, the Apostle John says in 1 John. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what John is, I think, specifically speaking about here, uh, there's the broader application, of course. If you confess, God forgives you. Absolutely. But What's in, in view of 1 John chapter 1 is that there's been a breaking of relationship with God. And he says, if, if you confess your sins, God's faithful and righteous. You, you can know that and go to the bank that God will forgive you your sin. He, in fact, he already has. You know, Romans chapter 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation, which comes from sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have no condemnation. But when you come to God and you confess your sins, you're not seeking to establish your identity in Christ in the sense that now I have to become his child again. You're seeking to rightly establish who you are with who God says you are. And you've said, God, I've, I've walked away from you. God, I have sinned. God, I've, I've stepped out in anger. I've stepped out in pride. God, forgive me. And the great truth of scripture is that um, God forgives and not only does he forgive, he doesn't, he, he says, he says, of course, I forgive you. What that does is it restores relationship. When we walk in sin, when we walk in darkness, we walk with a more difficult relationship with the Lord. The more we walk in our own way, sometimes the harder it is to hear his way. Because we're so focused on what I want and what we want that we don't consider to ask God, what do you want? If you're a child of God, I want to say it again. If you're a child of God, your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. However, when we walk in our sin, our fellowship with God is broken. Confession removes barriers of fellowship. Confession removes barriers of fellowship. Thanksgiving. Um, so adoration, confession, thanksgiving. Part of prayer is acknowledging the many things we are thankful for, including, God, thank you for snow. God, thank you for that seagull that was flying overhead this morning that looked really angry. God, be with that seagull. First <laughs> Thessalonians 5.17, it says, give thanks in all circumstances. I don't know what circumstances are in, your, in all your lives this morning, but I know this, you and I, we can give thanks even when we don't feel like it. Why? 
because we go to God whose character is rock solid. And we go with having his heart and his mind and his desires on our, on our lips as we confess our sins to God. And we begin to see, God, you've been faithful here, you've been faithful here, you've been faithful here, you've been faithful here. God, thank you. Thank you. Um, Hebrews 4.16, you can write this one down. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that we can come and we can approach the throne of grace with boldness to find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Turn that into a prayer of thanksgiving. God, thank you that in this difficult situation, thank you, God, in this sin, I can turn to you and you hear my cry and you meet me in my prayer of need. And as your child, God, I can come boldly into your presence. That's what God wants to do. That's what God has made possible for us to do. I, I, have, a, I have a sheet up here uh, and it's, it's from a book um, that I found really helpful throughout the years. And, and it's uh, verses of who I am in Christ. Verses like, um, that, that tell me I'm accepted, like John 1 that says I'm God's child, or John 15 that says I'm a Christ's friend, or Romans 5 that says I have been justified. You know, it gives me verses that tell me that I'm secure. Romans 8, I already gave it to you. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 28, I'm sure that all things work together for the good of those who are called by God. It tells me of who I am in Christ and that I'm significant, that I'm the salt and the light of the earth, that, that I am a channel of his life because I'm a part of the vine. It tells me in John 15 that I've been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. Sometimes it's really good to have some verses like this to remind you of who you are and to turn these into prayers of thanksgiving. Father, thank you that I am your child. Thank you, God, that I'm a saint. Thank you for adopting me into your family. Thank you that nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Turn these words of the text into prayers for your life. Thanksgiving prayers. Great way to, to deepen your prayer life. Finally, supplication. Admittedly, many of us spend a lot of time in supplication, which is a recognition that we need God. <laughs> that we need God to intervene. We need God's heart. We want God's heart to intervene in our lives. Supplication basically means this. Ask God to meet your needs according to his will. That's in essence what it is. You can go boldly to the Father. As you do, ask God to meet your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What an amazing thing to be reminded of. God's care for you. God's love for you. God's love for me and purpose for my life. The most important way that God does all these things, that, that, that he supplies our needs, is by giving us himself. Sometimes I like to think, God, if I had more of this or if I had this, that would be great. The best gift God has ever given is Jesus. And the power and the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we pray prayers of supplication and we say, God, meet my needs according to your will. We can trust God in his will because his character is sure. We can also trust that when we care about God's glory... And we care about God's namesake. Man, we'll be met with the fullness of Christ living in and through us that can't be paralleled any other way. That's my prayer for you. And my encouragement to you is to sometime this week, maybe you're a journal, journaler, journaler, can't say that word. Maybe you journal. Maybe you don't. Um, write out a prayer, however short, however long. Kids, you can do this. God, you are fill in the blank. God, here's what I want to confess. God, thank you for this. God, here's a place I, I, I need you. Make that a prayer for your life centered on the scriptures. If you want a copy of my notes or a copy of that sheet I held up that I know that you couldn't see a couple minutes ago, I'd be happy to make you one to help you grow closer to the Lord in your prayer life as you seek him. Let's pray together. Our Father and our King, you are holy, you are righteous, and you are good. And we thank you, God. We thank you for the gift of Jesus to us. 
God, we, we are thankful that when we were lost in our transgressions and sins, you made a way for us to be made right with you. And, and Lord, um, for those hearing my voice today who don't have a relationship with you, God, I pray that they would know that they're loved. I pray that they know that you long to give them a gift through your son. Father, we confess to you that so many times we build our own altars, we build our own images, we build our own lowercase g gods in our life, where we give our time, we give our attention, and we give our focus. And God, we confess that when we do that, we, we walk in a less close relationship with you. God, thank you, though, that in the midst of that, you forgive our sins. You have forgiven our sins. Thank you, God, that when we come and we turn our face toward you, you are there and you are ready to hear and you're ready to engage in relationship. God, would you lead and guide us by your spirit to know when we walk in our own power and not the power of the risen Messiah. Father, thank you for the gift of, of families. Thank you for the gift of food. Thank you for the gift of a place to be and to lift up the name of Jesus. It is an it is a privilege. It's a privilege to be here. It's not for us, God. Like the psalmist says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God, it's for you that we are here. It's for you that we long to live. It's in you, God, that we live and we move and we have our being. Thank you, God, for giving these gracious gifts to us. Help us to be thankful for the most simple of things in our life, as well as the incredible blessings that come our way by your hand. God, many of us walk in today and we have issues going on in our lives, issues of um, trust broken, issues of shame and guilt, uh, issues, Lord, of illness and sickness, God, meet us in our need according to the riches of Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, speak to each one of our hearts here. Show us who we are in your sight. Show us how you desire us to walk in your power and in your presence. We love you, Lord, and we pray this. In the name of Jesus, our Messiah and our Redeemer. And together, everyone, we, together, everyone says, Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.